0: Good to be with you. Glad you're all here. Keep your Bibles at John 6 16 through 21. That's going to be our text for this morning. Um, Let's just give the Lord a hand just for his ministry to us so far. Just that the music and you realize there's a theme this morning, right? Right? The security of Christ and and all of that. Think of the songs that we've sang. I'll bring it back up later, but um, that's basically what we're looking at today. Um, and, I, and I'm excited. I, I, I had a really, really, really tough time writing this sermon because, as you all know, I'm a very emotional person, so um, I tend to get a little weepy. So I found myself writing and, and weeping a lot. And uh, I didn't let my wife know. Uh, she's in the other, uh, the other end of the house, so uh, when I come out, I'm like, I'm, I'm good. Hey, how you doing? What's going on out here? Because she'd have been like, oh no, it's going to be one of those messages. Uh, but maybe not. We'll see how the Lord leads it here. But uh, just the text, is, uh, the parallels in it are just incredible. So last Sunday, we looked at the fourth major sign uh, John recorded that shows that Jesus is Messiah and God. The Feeding of the 5,000 at Bethsaida, Julius. How many of you were with us last week? Cool. So half of you. So I would suggest that you go to our website and listen to the message. Uh, I think that uh, it will not only frame the context of what we're talking about today and, and in the course of several weeks, but uh, just a great message, great scripture on, on that miracle and details and things that I discovered I thought were just amazing. So you can go to the website and listen to that. This morning we're going to look at the fifth major sign John recorded, Jesus walks on water. How many of you have heard of Jesus walking on water? How many of you have ever studied the story and actually looked at it? One. Okay, I was going to say a few, but no other (laughs) hands went up. But most people have heard of that story, right? I've even heard that as a a line in a song. You know, if I could walk on water, you know, it's like copying what Jesus did. Pretty popular story, pretty popular theme. So I sounded pretty good right there for half a second, didn't I? You guys think I should go into singing? Stick to preaching. Darn it. I'm trying to get out of this for years. Uh, Just kidding. Every time I write a sermon, I'm yelling at my wife at the other end of the house, I'm supposed to be doing this with my life. And she's like, okay, so keep doing it. Uh, but anyways, this is a, a very, very well-known story. and An actual historical event. It's not just a story or a nursery rhyme. So we're going to be taking a look at it today. It is the fifth major sign John recorded. That's not to say that Jesus only performed a handful of miracles. He did a lot of miracles, but John focuses in his gospel on a handful of them. and and for a particular purpose, really just to show that Jesus is the Messiah and that He is divine, He is God. This morning, as we unpack this small but highly significant passage, I'm going to give you four S's, okay, four S's. I've been doing this lately. I don't know why my wife's like, could you stop? Uh, But it's just a kind of a practical way to, to look at each section or set of verses. So four S's I'll be giving you after we pray, I'll start, okay? Lord, thank you for your incredible faithfulness and your ongoing ministry to us, uh, that you have even been ministering to us here today through the songs that we've been singing and the fellowship. And it's just your faithfulness is, is just incredible to me, even though... Kind of mind-blowing to me, Father, because I, I know how I am and how I'm, I'm faithful one moment and, and then not so faithful the next, and, and I'm wavering and I'm all over the place, but you are just consistently faithful. I'm so glad that the Bible says that you are, and you absolutely are this, that you are immutable, you are unchanging. And if you have set your affections and love on me, that's never going to change, no matter what I do. And that's not a license to sin because I want to love you, I want to serve you, but it's just a reality. And every person who is in Christ has that as their reality. We have the assurance of our salvation. Teach us today, Lord, about this incredible story of Jesus walking on water and all the implications, not all of them, we could probably study the story for a lifetime, but just give us some stuff from it today that uh, would be transformative and not just fill our minds with information, but change us and sanctify us and make us a little bit more like Jesus. Maybe there's one or two or some here that have yet to come to know Christ in a saving way, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would work that miracle, which I think is by far the greatest of all miracles, when you take a dead person who is dead spiritually and make them alive to you. That is incredible. And uh, so, Lord, we just pray that we would humbly listen and be instructed by You today. Teach us about this event this story and transform us. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, guys, let's look at the first S. Jesus sees his disciples' plight. Verses 16 through 18, Jesus sees his disciples' plight. It says, when evening came, His disciples, speaking of Jesus' disciples, went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It's a little Roman district on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. They started across the sea, and they were headed in the direction of Capernaum. And it says, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And then in verse 18, the sea became rough because of a strong wind because a strong wind was blowing. So after Jesus feeds the multitudes, right? You got the 5,000 men who sat down, then you got all the the women and all the children, probably 15 to 20,000 people. After that, right after that, Jesus dismisses the multitudes, tells them to, to go back to where they came from or whatever. And he basically tells his disciples to to go back, you know, go down the side of the mountainside and go into the boat that they came on and sail back to where they had come from, the region of Capernaum. And, and after Jesus dismisses the crowds and dismisses his disciples, he goes off into the mountainside, into a, seclude, a secluded place to pray. He seeks the Father and, and he's up there praying. And so that's the context. The feeding has been done, the disciples have been dismissed, the multitudes have been dismissed, Jesus has been away. He's away and he's praying and the disciples literally descended the mountainside and I don't think it was like, you know, climbing the Matterhorn or something. It was a steep hill and they went down the trail. You know, it's not like they had to grab, you know, they had the rope and all that. They, they kind of walked down this big hill and this region of Galilee has a lot of mountains and foothills around it and they went down the mountain and they, they climbed onto the boat and they set sail for Capernaum. They did exactly what they were instructed to do. And there's a detail there. It says it was dark. So this is nightfall. This is maybe 6.30, 7, 8 o'clock at night. Uh, This is around Easter time because the Passover was happening. Uh, So, uh, you know, there would have been a full moon out, but that didn't play into this. But it was certainly dark. What time does it get dark around Easter now? 5, 6 o'clock? Same thing over there. So it's dark out, and these guys are on the boat. They're taking off. And as they sailed along the coastline, because that's typically what you would do, if you were just going to travel to another coastal town or city, you would just kind of stay within a mile of the coastline, away from the sandbars and things like that, but you wouldn't go out real far. You wouldn't go out to the middle of the lake or the sea. And as they sailed along the coastline, a strong wind started to blow across the sea, and as the detail says, the water became rough, it became choppy. Now, I mentioned this last week, but the Sea of Galilee is the second lowest body, and really point, uh, with, uh, you know, with the exception of caverns and things like that, and, uh, or, or maybe the Grand Canyon. But literally, the Sea of Galilee is like the second lowest body of water on earth at 700 feet below sea level. And because of that, that uh, low elevation, and because it's surrounded by mountains, it has interesting weather patterns. Uh, sometimes cooler air will flow down off of the northern mountains and, and across the across and then down the southeastern tablelands and it 'll rush down upon the sea and kind of blow across the sea and When this cooler air comes down, it displaces the the, the normal air that 's there the the warm moist air and and what this causes is rough water and it causes a lot of waves and and choppiness and a lot of violent churning is what it causes. So, so you could be out on this lake in the middle of the day and it could be beautiful. And then these winds, these cooler air winds could blow in and mix with the warmer air. And the next thing you know you're, you're, you know, you're basically sailing around on glass and then it becomes so choppy you're fighting for your life. And that's how it is here. The strong wind that came down and stirred up all the water and everything, it blew the disciples' boat off course literally out to the middle, deeper waters. So they had meant to ride the coastline, but the wind blew them, we would say blew them out to sea. And they find find themselves at this point near the middle of the sea, where the waves are much, much larger, and the wind is is far more powerful out there. It's wide open spaces. And, And I don't want you to think that this is like the an ocean or anything. The, the Sea of Galilee is like eight and a half miles in diameter. So, you know, I, I said last week it's a tenth the size of Tahoe. When you go to Lake Tahoe and look at that, Galilee fits in one little corner. So it's not a, a huge, huge bottle of water. In fact, I think years ago I did the research, Don Pedro is shaped funny, but it's a way larger lake than Galilee. So Galilee's not technically a sea, but it's called a sea. But It has these windstorms and these choppy waves and stuff, and and if you're four miles out in the middle of this thing, it can be very, very dangerous. Some of the disciples were professional fishermen. It's what they did for a living, which also means they were accomplished sailors, right? If you're going to be sailing around and doing a lot of fishing, uh, you're going to have to be like, you know, I've never sailed before, but I'm a fisherman. How does that work out? You'd have to be a a, a sailor before you could actually be a fisherman, right? You'd have to know how to navigate in the wind and drop sails and do all the stuff and mop the poop deck. Have no idea what that means. Anyone know what that means? It's like an old sailor. Josh knows what it means. It figures he would know. Uh, He's a master of knowledge that really doesn't matter. Uh, uh, But he knows some things, too. I mean, the guy brought a cello today, so I've got to give him some credit. But it... You have to be a sailor, right, before you're a fisherman. So, so these guys, some of these guys like Peter and his brother Andrew, and John and James, these guys were professional fishermen. Don't think deadliest catch because that's like insane out in the middle of nowhere. But they, they worked this lake. They were familiar with the weather patterns. They knew how to navigate uh, that lake and these storms that arose and all that. But they were very sudden and very violent. But really, none of this experience mattered at this point because that's how violent this windstorm was and these waves were. And these guys literally rowed as hard as they could. I mean, they were just, you couldn't use the sail. That would blow you in circles or end up flipping the boat. So they had to draw in the sails, and, and they had to use the rows. And, and these guys rode to the cows came home, but they could not overcome or get through, cut through the headwind that was hammering them. It just, the wind and the waves prohibited them from moving forward toward their destination. And they literally battled all night into the early morning. So this isn't like, you know, a couple of hours on the sea. They're out there all night. Mark 6, 48, which tells the same story in a, in a bit of a different way, but it's all the same truth, tells us that Jesus didn't come to them walking on the water until the fourth watch, which is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., So if these guys bounced at like 6.30 or 7 at night, and Jesus doesn't come to them till maybe 4 a.m., these guys are out there 9, 10 hours. And when they got in the boat, there wasn't a windstorm, or else they probably wouldn't have sailed. So they got in it, and everything was cool. They began to sail, and then that's when it hit them. And then they find themselves out in the middle of the sea, and they are fighting, literally fighting for their lives, 9, 10 hours. And, And you know they would have been exhausted. I mean, if you're out there trying to row against that and trying to, and maybe some of the guys are bailing water out of the boat, you know, and maybe some of them are trying to catch something while they're at it, you should be helping us. No, you don't understand. This is the perfect time, dude. You know, who knows? But they would have been exhausted, just tired. And I tell you what, they would have been panic stricken, wouldn't they? They they would have been fearful. Maybe they wondered, will this be our last voyage? Certainly seemed like it because it was just a kind of a perilous situation. And Mark 648, and I'm going to go back and forth to Mark a little bit because there's more detail, but Mark 6.48, the next verse, and or the same verse actually in that in that chapter I already cited, it also tells us that Jesus was watching them from land. Jesus is, is on land, and I don't know if he's at his high perch or wherever he was up on the mountainside or if he'd come down already, but apparently he is he is watching them. He, he could see them struggling against the wind and waves. He could see their plight. And of course, if you're like me, you're going to say to yourself, how? How, does he, how is he able to see them in the middle of this battle for their lives? They're fighting the, the open sea. How? It's, it's dark outside. And some speculate that because of the full moon, you could see all the way across the lake and you could see what was going on out there. And, and usually when, when people say those kinds of things, I get what they're saying, but at the end of the day, they pretty much deny all things supernatural and always come up with some sort of scientific explanation. I don't think it had anything to do with the moonlight or him, him looking out there and, and being able to see them. They were near the middle of the sea, roughly four to five miles away. It was dark. They were in a Galilean fishing boat, and they recently dug one up over in that region, and uh, these boats were roughly 27 feet long. So this is a really, really big canoe. It's not an ocean liner. It's not one of those boats from Deadliest Catch. It's not a cruise ship. It's not something you would be able to see out in the middle of the sea. It's a very, very small boat. And, And you also have to keep in mind that the waves were rolling at this point. You were getting rollers out there choppy and rollers and all that and then you've got also the wind that is whipping up the white caps and, and 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 you know what happens out there when that happens when the wind starts blowing and it stirs up that water you get a pretty good mist over right you get mist and condensation over the water maybe 20 30 40 100 feet high over the water so I just think that in terms of being able to physically see them out there with your own eyes totally impossible Too far away, the boat's too small, it's dark, you've got a storm, you've got big waves. There's no way he's sitting up there watching, and they didn't have binoculars back then. I don't even know if they had those things that you pulled out, you know, like on the Mop the Poop deck movies. I have no idea. I, I don't think they could be physically seen out there. There was just too many factors. So the question is, how was Jesus able to see them? How could he see their plight? Well, what is the theme of John? Jesus is God. God can see things we cannot see. He can see the future. He can see the human heart, who we actually are on the inside, right? In fact, Hebrews 4.13 tells us that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Literally nothing, which means what? He sees everything. He sees all things. Jesus utilized, at this point right here in history, Jesus utilized the the visual capabilities that only God possesses. He looked through the storm. He's looking through the storm and through the nightfall And, and at a great distance. He's looking through all of that and overcoming all of the obstacles as God only can with that kind of sight. And He's watching and seeing the disciples' plight. This can mean only one thing. Jesus is God. It's, that's it. I, I don't know about you, but I've never heard of anyone ever performing a miracle like that where they could see like this. And today we've got some pretty incredible technology. Maybe it's possible today with some of the electronics. But now this, this, the, the idea here is him watching them isn't that he can see them from the mountaintop with his own eyes in the typical physical sense. It's that he can see them supernaturally that in his mind and in his eyes, he has a perfect view of them. They're right in front of him. And he sees them battling and, and rowing and panicking and, and trying to beat this storm. And, and, and think about it. He lets it go on for a while, doesn't he? What does that say about how he, when we enter into difficult seasons, that he might be watching, of course, but allowing us to be shaped by it and to battle and to maybe persevere? I tell you, it can mean only one thing, that he is God. Now look at the second S with me. He, he sees the disciples, and here's the second one. Jesus strolls on the stormy sea. Verse 19, he strolls on the stormy sea. It says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and it says, and they were frightened. Duh! Duh! Would that not be frightening? Why is he not swimming? I'd be freaked out. I'd be wigged out. We look at the disciples and say, what a bunch of wimps. Are you kidding me? If you saw somebody come walking up to you on water, uh, you would either bow or run. He comes up to them and they are frightened. And here's my point. Jesus did not merely observe his disciples' and and see their plight as they battled wind and waves. He actually came to them to help them. He sees what's going on with them, but he takes initiative, and he comes down off the mountainside, crosses the beach, and walks across the water four miles out to sea, if you will, unless he made it there faster than that. He certainly could have. And he comes to help them. And I would say it is one thing to look upon people who are in need with charitable eyes. It is quite another to act charitably and meet their needs. Did you hear what I said? Many times us Christians, we walk around and we see the plight of others and we have these sort of eyes eyes of mercy and charity toward them, but it, it never becomes manifested into action. And it is quite a different thing to look upon a needy soul with pity than it is to actually take action and go try to meet the need and help a person. And Jesus sets an example for us here. He doesn't just observe and watch and see. He goes to them to help. And that's how we need to be. During the fourth watch, Jesus left the land, strolled across the sea, walked right through the storm, and came to their boat. Now, let's just think about what's playing out here. Walking on water requires a suspension of gravity, doesn't it? It would. And not just a suspension of gravity, a partial suspension of gravity. To to do this, you would need to take away the right amount of gravity so the bottom of your feet remain positioned just above the water level, right? See, typically when we look at this passage and read it, we think about suspension of gravity, but we don't think about the complexity of how he suspended it. If he had fully suspended it, he would have floated away. If He hadn't suspended enough, He would have sank. Not only does Jesus suspend gravity, not only does Jesus overcome the laws of physics, the laws of nature, the laws of creation here, He suspends just enough so He can walk across the sea. Pretty amazing if you think about it. And what does this tell us? Only God has the ability to suspend gravity. And do it in a precise manner like this. John's point is simple, yet again. Since Jesus does what only God could do here, he is without a doubt God, right? When the disciples saw Jesus coming toward them, walking on the water, they became frightened, they became fearful. In Mark, it says they were terrified. Thambeo is the Greek translation, and it, it just literally means like blown away in fear. Like you've seen something that is so out of this world that you become maybe so excited about it that you become fearful and you don't know what to do. And you keep asking yourself, did I just see what I just saw? They became thambeo. They became frightened, terrified. And I would say, Why? Why? you would think that in the midst of a storm like this, they'd been happy to see Jesus, right? How many miracles has Jesus performed in front of them? How many times has Jesus showed them who he is and his capabilities? He just got done taking five loaves and two fish and multiplying them and feeding about 20,000 people. And yet in this instance, he walks up to them and they're like, I don't even know what to do, bro. They're tweaking out. They're freaking out. I'd have been, like, really scared at first and then said, Hey, it's Jesus. Thank God we're not going to drown. Here's why they were frightened by his appearance. They were unable to recognize him. They actually thought he was a ghost. Mark 6, 49 through 50. They thought Jesus was a ghost. Now, this is interesting because Jesus had not changed his appearance. He didn't change his tunic. He didn't change his hairstyle. He didn't do something decorative with his beard. He didn't put on different sandals. There was nothing different about him here. His appearance was exactly the same. And we know later on in the Gospels, we read that he could appear differently and all that after his resurrection. He looked just like he did nine, ten hours earlier when they were with him feeding the multitudes. There was no difference in his appearance physical appearance. He looked just like Jesus, and yet they're looking at Him and they they don't recognize Him and they're frightened. Why? Their circumstances. The stress of the storm, the peril they were in, impaired their faith, impaired their ability to see Jesus rightly. Highly stressful situations can do this to us. They can. They can keep us from recognizing the presence of Jesus. Isn't this true? During the the storms of life, if you want to call them that, we often say, where are you, God? Where are you, Jesus? Have you left me? I need your help. Right in the middle of a, a terrible life storm, that's usually the first thing we do is we start to say to ourselves, I don't think God is with me right now. I think Jesus has left the building kind of like Elvis, right? He's gone. And, and, and we, felt like, we feel like we've been abandoned. We feel like we've been forsaken. And usually it's because we can't imagine that Jesus would allow a storm like this to impact us. And we see him here clearly. Maybe he's the one that whipped up the storm to teach his disciples a lesson. Maybe Jesus went you know I mean who knows that's one of the first things i say when calamity hits where are you god where are you and the truth is jesus is right there with us but because of fear and wavering faith the circumstances he seems absent he seems gone or worse he feels gone. And it's so sad that we put so much emphasis and stock in our feelings. In fact, that's the insane direction our nation is in. Everything is based on how people feel. And if truth makes them feel bad, forget that truth. It's a terrible situation. And the fear and the plight just blinded them. And it blinds us at times. Sometimes Jesus seeks to make his presence known to us through a godly friend in those moments of of great trial, persecution, or a storm, but we fail to recognize his presence there in that person. They they come to us in our our time of need, and and, and Jesus wants to, he wants so badly to, to minister to us through them, but we don't realize it. And we say, can you pray for me? I don't sense the presence of the Lord in my life. And Jesus is shouting to us, I'm here in Tom. I'm in Jill. I'm talking to you. I'm encouraging you through Jill. I'm speaking to you through Richard. I'm speaking to you through Kay, through Michael, through Shelly, through anyone who's a believer that's standing there. I'm here in you. And we don't even realize it. James, would you pray for me? I just don't, I don't, I don't even sit, I'm going through this struggle and I don't sense the Lord's, he's here. I don't think he's with me right now and I don't understand it. James should say he's here in me and he's here to love you. I'm here to care for you on his behalf. I'm here to be his hands and feet. Jesus is in hospitals right now through his saints, encouraging people who are dying or who are struggling with cancer or whatever. He's in each of you in this room if you belong to him, if you're in him by grace through faith. I'll just say, sadly, circumstantial blindness is pretty common among believers. I know this from personal experience. Do you? We let the storms of life impair our spiritual vision. And thus keep us from recognizing and enjoying the Lord's presence when we need Him most. We do this to ourselves. We do this to ourselves. They can't tell it's Jesus, they think it's Casper, the friendly ghost, because of their circumstances. It's insane. I'm joking. I don't think he looked like Casper or anything like that. Maybe the Ghostbusters stuff. They think he's a ghost. They just can't figure it out. Let's look at the third S. And Jesus subdues his disciples' fear. Verses 20 through 21a. Look at how he begins to do this. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Immediately, there's voice recognition from some of them. Okay, that's the voice of Jesus. And then it says in 21a, then they were glad to take him into the boat. You bet they were glad to take him into the boat. In their moment of terror, in their moment of plight, Jesus identifies himself and and tells his disciples, not to be afraid. It is I, it is I, the Lord. Do not be afraid. But Peter is hesitant, and he challenges Jesus to prove his identity. It doesn't say this in John. It says it over in Matthew. Peter's not convinced that the one who just spoke to them to calm them down is actually Jesus. He's still entertaining the idea of Casper or something else. And he says this, Lord... If it is you, if it's you, Jesus, command me to come to you on the water. 14.28 of Matthew. So, Peter's kind of wigged out, doesn't necessarily believe him right off the bat, and says, well, if it's Jesus, I'll put out the question, and if it's Jesus, he'll have me come walk on him. He'll be able to do that for me. If not, he won't answer, and I'll stay in the boat and stay more dry than I would be if I fell in the water. And jesus responds to peter even though peter is doubting and and doesn't believe it's jesus at this point and he's testing jesus which i think it's never wise to test god but he does it here and jesus responds to him with a simple come maybe he went like this come and what does peter do he hops out of the boat he begins to walk on water toward jesus there's another miracle Jesus not only modified gravity for himself so he could stand out there, he does it for Peter right there in an instance with the authoritative word, come, gravity is semi-suspended for Peter. and He gets out and he's walking on the water. There's another miracle. Miracles all through this text. But unfortunately, Peter takes his eyes off Jesus to focus back on the storm that is swirling around him and what happens. He begins to sink. He begins to go down. Man, I tell you, if we can remember to keep our eyes on Jesus rather than on our storm, we will be able to move forward with joy instead of sink in despair. You've heard people say, man, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. Where do you think they draw it from Peter's mistake? Keep your eyes on Jesus. How many times have you been told that? How many times have you actually obeyed that when somebody told you that? Goose egg. You look up at him for two seconds and you look back down at your bank account. Oh! You start sinking. Right? You look at your, your situation, your health or whatever, and you begin to sink in despair and anxiety and fear. If we could just do the opposite of what Peter did. But I still think what he did but getting out of the boat is pretty incredible. So Peter's sinking. Right? He's going down. In absolute terror and desperation, Peter cries out, Lord, save me! Now, Peter might not have been a good water walker, but he knew who could save him, didn't he? you got to give him credit there. He might not have been Fred Astaire on the water, took his eyes off Jesus and went down as all of us would have. I would have went kerplunk right when I got out of the boat. I wouldn't even ask Jesus the question. Command me to come to you. Come to us if you're Jesus. We don't want to think of Peter in an ill way here. He starts to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus responds by taking his hand. But as he's pulling up out of the water, he admonishes him, right? He gently corrects him and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I mean, it's Jesus. See, we don't have this luxury Jesus is invisible to us, although he makes his presence known to us in various ways in us through the Holy Spirit in others, but, but Peter is literally looking at him with his own eyes. I can't wait for that day when I get to look Jesus in the face and say, wait a minute, you're not a, a swish, a swish, screwed up my own joke. You're not a Swiss snow skier, there, right? Because every picture of him, he looks like his name would be Sven and it's like he's got blue eyes and long blonde hair. We've got the European version of Jesus. He was actually Jewish. But I screwed up the joke because I said swish, like two points. He just says, oh, you a little faith. Why do you doubt? I would have been like, it's just who I am. I know. When they climbed into the boat, because they didn't just stand there. He pulled them up out of the water and they climbed into the boat. It says over in Matthew 14, 29 through 33, the wind immediately ceased. There's another miracle. You've heard of Jesus silencing a storm. That's not this instance, but he did it here too. The wind dies out as soon as they get into the boat. And what happens? The disciples fully knew who Jesus was. They realized what he was doing for them. And it says in that text, they began to worship Jesus, calling him the son of God. They were saying like, you truly are the son of God. You are God. You are Messiah. It's who you are. I get it. We believe it. And they're worshiping him right there. It is the, the presence and power of Jesus, that, that's what subdued their fears, and that's what paved the way for authentic worship, because it, it really is tough to worship the Lord rightly when we are racked with anxiety and fear. In fact, worship is probably one of the last things on our mind, and it should be the first thing, shouldn't it? It's all about Perspective the presence and power of Jesus is, is also what made the disciples glad in our text, 21a, right? They realized who it is. Come in the boat. It was their Savior. Their Savior had come across the sea to save them from the situation. Let's look at the fourth S. Jesus safely delivers His disciples to the shore. 21 B says, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Another miracle occurred here. I like what MacArthur said about it. He said the boat instantly arrived at its precise destination as soon as Jesus stepped into the boat. So somehow Jesus gets in the boat. The wind dies down. They start worshiping because they know who he is. And then the boat gets fast forwarded to the shore. The boat went from the middle of the sea to the harbor at Capernaum, a distance of about four miles in the blink of an eye, in a snap of a finger, probably quicker than that. Now keep in mind, they were not on board a 100-mile-an-hour cigarette boat or rum runner. At 100 miles an hour, it would take you two and a half minutes to travel this distance. They were on a Galilean fishing boat with no engine, and they traveled four miles in a hundredth of a second. That's fast. And I might add their hair, beards, equilibriums, and clothing were not disturbed. Because think about traveling at that speed. That'd be pretty insane. And these guys, it just literally, it's like somebody blinked their eye and they were over there. That's a miracle. That's another miracle. Jesus not only saw his disciples' plight, he strolled along the stormy sea and came to help them. He subdued their fears with His powerful presence, and He safely brought them to shore. Jesus' ministry to His disciples was full service, from seeing their plight to delivering them from danger. In six short verses, we've seen four miracles, four supernatural events occur here. If we include the calming of the wind after Jesus enters the boat, Matthew 14, 32, you've got five miracles right there in the six, seven verses. That many miracles right there. Pretty incredible. What was John's purpose for recording all these miracles? As always, he wants us to know that Jesus is Messiah and God. Amen? All right, so get ready for your application. Maybe you've already been applying some of this stuff. You've been thinking about it, applying it to your life. I said earlier as I started the message, the parallels in this passage are they remarkable. They're incredible. I want you to think about the boat for a moment that they got on. The boat represents life. Life is like a boat, if you think about it. At birth, we kind of enter the boat and begin to sail along through life and through various experiences, and you've got, you know, preschool and, and, and kindergarten and all that stuff, and high school, college, whatever, however you want to think about it. You kind of get in the, in, 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 in the boat and you begin to sail through life. We sail from one destination to another year after year, right? until we arrive at our final destination, our final port of call. So life is the boat, the boat is our life. The strong wind represents the difficulties that arise in life as we are sailing along. We sometimes refer to these difficulties as what I've already pointed to, the storms of life. Everybody goes through storms. No one escapes the storms of life. Everyone experiences a, a death in the family, a, an illness, a job loss, a heartbreak and a breakup. It, it happens to everyone. No one escapes them. You don't have to be just a believer a follower of Jesus, a disciple, to experience storms in life. Everyone goes through them. Everyone. Members of this church are going through various storms as I speak. Some are going through a storm of of health issues. Right? Whether it be Cancer, a flu, some other physical ailment. I don't consider the fact that I had to just get bifocals a storm, but it is because it's hard to get used to them. (laughs) I keep going like this, and it's like, oh, my gosh. I don't know how to look through them. But some of us in this room are are going through, that's not a storm, that's not even a sprinkle. Some of us in this room are going through a real storm, health storm. I know of a dear sister here who beat cancer, but the effects of all the treatments are beating her right now. There are storms of health issues in this congregation. Some are going through the storm of, of losing a loved one. You just lost someone you loved dearly uh, to a sickness or, or whatever. Car accident. I don't know about the car accident in this congregation, but I know that some of you Particular Cammy just lost her father. He was an older man, but it still hurts like heck. Some of you are going through the storm of health issues. Some of you are going through the storm of losing a loved one. Some are going through a storm in their family with their parents. There's parental parental issues. They've got the dynamics with the parents aren't good, and, and you got a real struggle there. And you know how it is, too, when parents start to get older. They, they can become pretty tough to, to love and care for. I know I'll be a disaster when I'm older. Stick with me, Rachel, please. Maybe there's a storm in the family with their own spouse. Maybe with their own children. I think that Being sick and those kinds of storms in the family are difficult. I know I've gone through them. I've lost family members and things. Family dynamics can be real tricky, but I'm not sure. I think I'd have to put high on the list of emotional pain when your kids stab you. Yeah. Those little buggers. Took care of them their whole life. Provided for them, and, and they hate you. You know, parents will say the worst thing that a parent can experience is the loss of a child. You know what's pretty darn close to that is the loss of a child in relationship. Some people think the worst thing you can do is just they just pass away and all that. Well, that, that's certainly terrible, but to have a, a child or a loved one who is actively staying away from you and has disowned you and who, who rejects you and... That, I, to me, that seems worse. You know, I, when I was young, my, uh, my dad bailed. And people would say, well, I lost my dad at 14 or whatever. You know, he, he died. He had a heart attack. And, you know, that's horrible. But have a dad who doesn't love you and who's alive. Some of you are dealing with storms in the family. Some of you are going through a financial storm where there isn't enough money to make ends meet. You know, you could seriously work your budget and go Dave Ramsey and all that. You'd probably be better off if you did that than if you didn't, but you can still experience financial difficulty. Some of you work in professions where you know, you get laid off every year, and, and you, you think through that and try to plan for that as best you can, and then you've got about four months where you have no income coming in, and that, that's, that's hard, man. And of course, companies wait till Christmas to lay off. You know, lay, lay me off in, in February, not in December. Oh, no. There's no good time to get laid off, right? Come on. Well, I'd prefer to be laid off. No, I'd prefer not to be laid off. But it happens. You see, for those of us who are going through a storm of health issues or family issues or losing a loved one or financial things or whatever, whatever kind of storm it is, this passage is a great source of encouragement because it shows very clearly how Jesus responds to His disciples when storms arise. Now, let's apply it to ourselves. We've seen what Jesus did for His 12 disciples here. Let's apply it to us, which you totally can do. Jesus sees our plight. He sees what we are going through. But it's more than that. I'm reminded of of the death of Lazarus, another Bible story later on. in John, when Lazarus died, his sisters Mary and Martha were just totally obliterated. They were heartbroken. They loved their brother. And when Jesus saw one of them, Mary, weeping, Jesus began to weep. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. You see, Jesus not only sees our plight, He feels our plight. And he weeps with us. Our plight is his plight. Our pain is his pain. Our tears are his tears. You remember what Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus when he knocked him off the horse? Why are you persecuting me? Saul's like, how am I persecuting you? When you persecute Christians, you persecute me. You've offended me. Jesus is our high priest. And He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because He was tempted as we are tempted. Yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus sees our plight and He responds accordingly. Jesus strolls with us through our storms. Because of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is always with us. We are never alone. Never. Not even for a millisecond. Not for a nanosecond. No storm can separate us from the Savior. Doesn't matter how... How violent the storm may be, it doesn't matter how hard the wind blows, it doesn't matter if there's a tornado involved, it doesn't matter, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Not even self-inflicted storms, which I'm really good at. Much of my storms are because of my own doing. Doesn't matter how powerful the storm is, doesn't matter what it looks like, doesn't matter insurmountable odds. It makes no difference. Nothing shall ever separate us from Jesus. You may feel that you're alone in your storm. But if you're in Christ, you're not alone. Jesus is with you. And guess what? His church is with you. A line in the uh, Army Ranger Creed says, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. I'll never leave a fallen man behind. Jesus never leaves His comrades, His soldiers, His disciples. In Matthew twenty-eight twenty, He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. He strolls with us through the storms. Jesus subdues our fear. He does this through Scripture and through His powerful presence. Do you realize that one verse from the Bible can vanquish our fears, lift our countenance, and refuel us for the fight? One verse has the power to do that. And yet the Bible is one of the last things we go to in the midst of a storm. You can read one verse and have everything about you changed. Your perspective, your disposition, your will to fight. One verse. His presence in us and and through his people produces the opposite of fear it produces peace, it produces joy, it produces courage knowing that He is with us in the storm, will empower and embolden us to to stand firm like a deeply rooted tree and even press forward no matter how hard the wind blows. His Word, the Scriptures, our Bibles, His presence through the Holy Spirit in us and in our brothers and sisters powerful, powerful weapon against fear, subduing our fears, emboldening us, encouraging us to press on or to just stand firm and glorify Him in the midst of it. Lastly, Jesus safely delivers us to the shore. If Jesus can suspend gravity the way that He did, if He can walk on water, if He can calm a violent windstorm, if He can get a boat full of people from point A to point B in the blink of an eye, surely He can get us through the storms of life. Yet, we must be careful in our thinking. The fact that Jesus can deliver us doesn't necessarily ensure that He will deliver us. You see, some storms are meant to last. The wind will keep blowing. The health issues will continue. Family dynamics will remain strained. Some things just stay. The Apostle Paul had a, some kind of a physical ailment, a thorn in his side, and he asked the Lord three times to take it away. And the Lord basically said, I'm not going to take it away because my grace is sufficient for you. Translation, the thorn is meant to drive you to reliance on me. Let me tell you what a life of ease and comfort produces. Absolutely no need for God. That's America. America doesn't need God. It's got all its money and possessions and crap. Some storms are meant to last and the good news is God works through our storms to sanctify, make us like Jesus. You see, God never wastes a storm. There's a purpose for the storm. I like what John Piper wrote. He said, I've never heard, of any, I've never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life come through times of ease and comfort. <laughs> Amen, brother. Some of my greatest moments of learning and and, and humbling have come through crushing circumstances through storms, but when things are easy, I become so lazy. If a storm does not die down, we must remember that God works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. We must remember that He will work through the storms and all of the storms and all of the circumstances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to bring to fruition the good work of faith He began in us. He will take us from the stormy sea all the way through to safety. He will. But that safety might just be the paradise of the Lord's presence not necessarily relief from the storm or some beautiful sandy beach in this life. Bare minimum, when our appointed time comes, Jesus will, without a doubt, safely deliver us to our final destination, His physical presence. Be encouraged by the Lord's Word to you today. Through the example of the storm and the disciples...